This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain, our family and supporters, and the health professionals who care for us. I'm Paul Evans. In some areas, the prevalence of chronic high-impact pain is as low as 5%, and in others it's between 30 and 35%, a five-fold difference. Evidence actually indicates that children of colour and black children also tend to receive poor pain care compared to their white peers. What are the cultural narratives? What are the policies? What are the inequities in access to treatment and services that are putting people with pain at risk of being stigmatised or discriminated against? In this edition of Airing Pain, I'll be looking at how differences in gender, ethnicity, disability and locality can impact the access and quality of pain care. According to the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, OHID, musculoskeletal, that's joints, bones and muscles conditions, are the leading cause of pain and disability in England and account for one of the highest causes of sickness absence and productivity loss. In its 2022 research, using data right down to individual GP practice level, the OHID reported significant inequalities and disparities in musculoskeletal pain care right across the board. Jonathan Hill is Director of Research for the School of Allied Health Professionals and is Professor of Physiotherapy in the Keele School of Medicine. Speaking to delegates at the 2023 British Pain Society annual scientific meeting, he focused on disparities in standards of musculoskeletal pain management in primary care. There's a huge variation happening in GP practice, but also when you look at the public health data, you can see a five times difference in the burden of musculoskeletal problems within some communities than others. And therefore you would expect two GP practices, one working in an area with a high burden, one working with a very low burden, to have very different sort of rates of referral or rates of imaging or rates of even opioid prescribing because you've got such differences in the population they serve. I mean, musculoskeletal pain is increasing. It's higher in women, it's higher in some ethnicities, but the, the really big ticket items are the most deprived areas. It's much higher, particularly women, in those most deprived areas. It's much higher with people with class 2 obesity and those who aren't being physically active. You know, rates above 25% with chronic long-term MSK pain in those groups. We've done some work at Kew University, some colleagues of mine, where they've been looking at population surveys and then mapping that and of course you get you know people who are overweight and people who are physically active and people in deprived areas in some communities grouped together much more than in others and they're finding in some areas local to us the prevalence of chronic high impact pain is as low as five percent and in others it's between 30 and 35 percent a five-fold difference and we're starting to really explore that data uh, particularly for musculoskeletal patients. When we started this conversation, I thought, OK, well, this is something that would be great for patients to look up. I've got a blood back. Which GP should I go okay. to? But you're looking at it from completely the other side, all the external factors, the social factors, maybe. Absolutely. What I'm interested in is saying, well, how can we improve primary care? Part of it is to be aware, understand that each practice serves a very different population. At the moment, integrated care systems, which sort of oversee 
what's happening within an area are often making demands of certain GP practices. Your referrals are too high, but they haven't got the contextual data. So if we're going to be wise and make good decisions, particularly integrated care systems, they need that kind of data. One of the things that I'm very excited about is a dashboard that would allow trusts and, and ICSs all over the country to upload data from local GP practices and be able to then explore how practices are doing. You know, with that data not really being at our fingertips yet, what data do we have? Looking at the differences across the last five years in areas such as whether patients feel that they were communicated with well, you know, were they listened to, were they involved in the shared decisions, what was their overall experience like? And generally, for most of the experience things, musculoskeletal is roughly doing the same as some of the other long-term conditions like cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular. The good news is we're a bit ahead of mental health, so those patients aren't getting as good experience, except for two areas where we're really lagging behind from the national data coming through the GP patient survey, and that's around getting a care plan agreed for people with long-term MSK conditions, and it's also around patients feeling that they had a consultation where they discussed what mattered to them, not just what was the matter with them. What are they doing in diabetes, which is 20% or so better in terms of patient experience around those two areas than we have in musculoskeletal? And, and what are the lessons to learn? And some of the ideas I've been thinking about, it's to do with their practice nurses doing diabetic clinics. It's to do with, they have a GP annual review that you can have, health check, and diabetes gets monitored and gets assessed. And there's some accountability, which isn't happening for patients with long-term MSK conditions. Well, I can tell you straight, because I have type 2 diabetes, and I have a chronic pain condition, I have fibromyalgia. And once you tick the diabetes box, the level of care is excellent, but not for other conditions. No, and I think this is the challenge. We need to challenge our integrated care system leaders to say, this can happen for diabetes, why is it not happening for musculoskeletal? And they will come back to us and say, well, you help us upskill our primary care workforce. And that was one of my key messages today, was about this upskilling, this integration of the knowledge and skills that you get in very specialist pain services is not available. At the moment, the cavalry that's coming into primary care for musculoskeletal are these people that have these first contact practitioner roles. That's what we call them. They're usually physiotherapists, FCPs for short. And at the moment, we don't give them very long and we are prioritising what they do around triage and diagnosis. And we haven't really differentiated yet a model where, as well as doing that, there's an opportunity for them to run something which looks a little bit like the clinic that you're talking about, run by the practice nurse, the patients with diabetes. And I think it might not be the FCP, it might be someone else in the primary care team, but there's a real job to do to work out how do we upskill them and how do we set up the structures to allow that kind of clinic to work. Clearly the national data at the moment is saying we're some way behind in terms of patient experience for musculoskeletal as we are for diabetic care. Well, what is it that the, when you interview the practice nurses that they say works, the ones who are doing the diabetic clinic, 
and I came up with a lovely pro- um, study done by Hall and Tolhurst. And they had looked at essentially some key themes that emerged from that. The first one was around these people really need good skills of communication. That's the key thing, empathy, understanding, tailoring the need. They also need to have better access to support for those with complex needs. We know that's the same in diabetes as it is for musculoskeletal pain. They also really had some reservations about the big, big push for digital, Mm. saying they're finding patients don't really want to use these apps. There's still lots of need for that humanity, that contact, that, that personal interface. And the last thing that they really pointed out was medication is such a big part of the management. And it is for MSK, for long-term MSK problems. And yet these clinics are often run by people who are non-prescribers. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of a problem there. We need to collaborate, particularly if you're bringing the cavalry as physios, who are usually non-prescribers, with our pharmacists so that whoever's running those clinics, we're not missing the medication piece. With a disease like diabetes, there is a tick point. There are numbers, there are tests. You are now diabetic. Is there anything like that with musculoskeletal pain? It's interesting. In in something like diabetes, you've got some really key blood tests that allow that. In musculoskeletal, the truth is that the diagnostics the equivalent of the blood test is actually a very thorough physical examination. And that's what these FCPs are kind of often doing, a very thorough physical examination. And if if it's not thorough enough there, then you can often go through to one of these integrated care services where that thorough examination is going to happen. There's something I didn't tell you, which I really want to bring up, and that's Claire Fuller has written this stock take report on primary care And she's really done a fabulous job. One of the things that she says is we've got to differentiate better between people who are accessing primary care infrequently and people who've got the long-term complex conditions. And I think that if you bring that back to the musculoskeletal context, we need that differentiating happening right from me. If you've got a long-term musculoskeletal pain problem, then you need to be hooked into these annual reviews, these clinics that are going to review that. That's very different from you going in with an ankle sprain or something short-term, a bit of tennis elbow, should be better in three or four months. And you just need the right advice and the right knowledge to know what to do. So how do we streamline the care for those infrequent attenders? And for the infrequent attenders, think about digital and not digital just for patients, but to think about digital for clinicians. A survey I had recently done with GP practices local to where I work at Keele University, what we found was the things that they felt that they had really good access to for their, you know, all these patients with musculoskeletal problems, most of them, vast majority being infrequent users, was things like social prescribing, which is great to hear, generic mental health, IAPT and those sorts of services. Also MRI scans and joint injections, which are perhaps questionable, particularly for spinal problems, perhaps better for things like knees and shoulders. But they felt that they really struggled to get good access to some very high value things like pain services, escape pain programs, um, vocational support, 
things like yoga and Pilates and Tai Chi for back pain, they just didn't have that available unless they just signposted the person back into the community. And in terms of digital, what they were really telling me was, well, the best thing that they had was patient self-management resources that they could click to send people to, but that was only half of the GP practices. And things like knowing when to refer, when to send them for a scan. There's a great piece of kit called iRefer that GP practices can have that helps them to, to only refer within guidelines. That was just not being rolled out and isn't available. So there's some real challenges there. And the other thing is that with the tech, what's happening is we're seeing increasingly examples of innovation happening through small companies. And the one I gave was one called Ortho Pathways, where what you do is you install onto the GP system this bit of software that takes the clinician through an assessment in real detail. And I gave the example of showing the back pain pathway, which is, you know, hugely complicated, but how it's all written, it's all available for the clinician, and therefore even the practice nurse or the you know, the non-physio, non-GP, knows what to ask the patient. And when they get to the end of it, there's a whole set of recommendations for the particular conclusion that they've come to in terms of the key messaging to the patient, where to signpost them, what management to think about, and what follow-up they should be considering for this particular individual. So all of that, the challenge then is, does the workforce want to operate to algorithms and to pathways or would it prefer to be much more fluid in the way that it operates and what we certainly know from my experience is GPs aren't that keen but some of the other primary care clinicians do seem to be much happier to use those sorts of things and we've got a big clinical trial at the moment testing the ortho pathways both quantitatively and qualitatively to look at it and we'll be interested to see what the results come up with. So what could you do to make those GPs more interested in the online stuff? Mm. Time, maybe. Absolutely time. Pressure. You know, they have got so much that they've got to do. And what we're doing, and what you see happening nationally now, is first contact practitioners coming in to reduce the burden for musculoskeletal. So a lot of patients now, I spoke to a GP recently who told me he doesn't see musculoskeletal anymore. It all goes through to one of these other healthcare professions mm. sitting in general practice. And so I think that's where the innovation will come. Not that GP colleagues couldn't do it, and they actually do do a fabulous job, but a lot of the innovation is likely perhaps to come with the people with the new roles who are much more open. But I think what we need to do is make sure that those new roles are not just focused on the diagnostic piece. We also have this care, this support, this slightly more long-term condition approach for those when we've differentiated. What does that look like for primary care? How do we treat patients with complex problems much better? A trial that's got me really excited just recently. It's called the Restore Trial, just published in The Lancet. Peter Kent was the first author and essentially a team in Australia between Perth and Sydney that did this very big trial and what they were looking at was is it effective to upskill mainstream physiotherapists with psychosocial skills to treat the complex chronic back pain patients 
And absolutely they found it was. But what excites me about Restore is that they managed to do that really effective training piece. Not only was it clinically effective, once again, they've shown it was incredibly cost-effective to do this. Roughly, it costs four times as much to send someone through a pain clinic as it does to send them through a physio clinic. And we just don't have capacity in the pain clinics. So I was urging conference here to think about integration where we use the skills in the pain teams to upskill, just like they have with the Restore trial. And what did they do in the intervention? Well, they gave them seven sessions of physio, an hour at the beginning and 30 to 40 minutes for follow-up. But they focused on three things. The first thing was they trained the physios to really help the patient to make sense of their pain. And, you know, understanding their beliefs, their fears, what they were avoiding, was there protective guarding going on? Was there activities they were avoiding because of their condition? Discuss their sleep routines, discuss their dietary habits. All of that piece, they really got the physios to take a slightly different approach and to look at that with the patient telling their story. The next thing they taught them to do was to really give effective graded exposure to the feared movements, the feared activities, and really build strategies and build confidence for patients. Show them, yes, you can do that, and work them through from things that they felt confident initially to the things they really scared, and just took them through that program. And the last thing they really focused on was lifestyle change. Thinking broadly for the patient, you know, what would they like to do around physical activity? What was their preference? What could they get them hooked into? Could they adopt healthy sleep and dietary habits? Could they think about stress management? Could they think about social engagement where relevant? And those physios, there was such a more holistic approach than they were normally doing. And yet they found this huge impact on the patients when they did that. Now, I don't think that's rocket science, but the truth is it's not something that patients are getting. Too often at the moment, patients are only seen just over two times on average with physio. We've got to push back to rehabilitation type physio. Physio that differentiates. And if you're an infrequent user, yeah, you get a short, here you go. But if you have got a long-term complex problem, we really do give you the sort of treatment like the Restore trial shows that makes a difference. That's Jonathan Hill, Director of Research for the School of Allied Health Professionals at the University of Kiel. Another of the speakers in that British Pain Society annual scientific meeting was Whitney Scott. She's a clinical psychologist at King's College London and has a clinical role at the Input Pain Management Unit at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital. Her session looked at the impact of stigma and discrimination in people living with pain. And it's that word stigma in the context of chronic pain that intrigues me. Chronic pain as a condition, and particularly when there are not clear kind of pathophysiological causes, which in many cases is most chronic pain conditions, because that sort of goes against, particularly in Western societies, what we expect of pain. So we expect that there's a clear relationship between pain and injury. That can be a context where people's pain can be invalidated, not believed, judged, and those are kind of the stigmatizing aspects of pain. And of course, you know, broader societal views about disability, that kind of comes into the role of stigma and kind of the related concept of discrimination. So we know that um, disability is one factor for which people can experience discrimination. 
And of course, there's also a range of other factors such as a person's age, their gender, their ethnicity, and those can all intersect with the pain experience to make a person um, with pain more likely to have discrimi- or experience discrimination and the adverse impacts of that. Well, of course, the first thing I guess we have to take into account is that with many chronic pain conditions, the pain is invisible. Definitely, and I think that's one of the reasons that stigma can be common because people can't see pain and they expect that if someone is in pain, there should be some quote-unquote objective way of identifying that, but that's just not how pain works. So it's a very difficult thing to recognize and communicate for people that don't have pain. And it's a very complex thing. And as humans, we don't grapple with complexity all that well. We like quite simple answers in pain very much goes against all of that and we have to try and wrap our heads around that if we are to support people holistically and effectively in a very compassionate way. So if I were to stick a notice around my neck, Mm -hmm. simple sentences, I have chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing that needs justifying, I would have to say, what is chronic pain? You can't see it. Yeah. This is how I feel. This Mm -hmm. is how it's affecting me. I'd have to have an awfully long notice board hanging around my my neck yeah and I think you know I'm a psychologist so I'm in the business of talking to people about their experiences you know it's never enough time but we spend a fair amount of time doing just that you know it's not a notice board but it's a conversation about what's the pain like for you you know how long have you had it what does it feel like and most importantly how does it impact your life and what are the wide-ranging areas that it impacts and that's, again, not something you can just have in a quick sentence or a quick you know, phrase on a notice board. And it also requires trust because telling you know, the wide-ranging impacts of your experience, that's not necessarily something you're going to do with someone you've just met. Um, and you might not even do it with people that you're closest with because that's a very personal thing. So I think in you know, being compassionate, not being stigmatizing, there's relationships that we need to build, there's trust, there's empathy, um, and all of that's very, very important when we're supporting people with pain. In your research, have you spoken to lots of people who feel stigmatized? So this was specifically in the context of people living with HIV who also had pain that was connected to their HIV, either the illness itself or the treatment for HIV. And in those interviews, even though we weren't specifically asking about stigma, um, we were asking people about their you know, broad experiences of pain, stigma sort of came out loud and clear in those interviews. So people talking about, you know, not wanting to tell other people about their pain um, in some instances because they were worried that that would reveal their HIV status. But in other instances, it was the pain itself that they felt would be stigmatized, you know, maybe indicating that they weren't healthy or that they were older. And then we've done work looking at sort of self-report questionnaires in people that attend treatment at the input pain clinic and they fill out questionnaires of items related to stigma. So for example, I felt embarrassed about my illness is one item, or other people avoided me because of my illness. And then we look at what those kind of scores relate to, and we find that first of all, people score quite highly on that kind of measure, suggesting that stigma is common in people with pain. And then that relates to negative outcomes like greater levels of pain-related disability and greater depression. So again, this impact of stigma um, can be quite wide-ranging. We sort of think that the issue is other people putting that onus on us to talk about the pain. Mm -hmm. But what about the person with pain? I mean, these are really complex issues, aren't they? And I think one of the real challenges that I've tried to wrap my head around with the work on stigma and discrimination is, you know, of course, 
individuals will experience similar events differently and the impact that it will have will be different and how they you know, communicate that impact will be different. And certainly some people may tend to kind of hold that quite close and they may not want to share things that they're struggling with with others. And that may be, you know, culturally influenced certain cultures, you know, when you say I'm rubbish or I'm not feeling well, that might not be met with the greatest of empathy or that might not be just something that's done. But I do also think we need to shift a little bit of the focus or a lot of the focus from the individual who has been stigmatized or discriminated against to thinking about these broader kind of social structures or social systems that are enabling the stigma and the discrimination to continue. So we really need to be looking at like what are the cultural narratives, what are the policies, what are the kind of inequities in access to treatment and services that are putting people with pain at risk of being stigmatized or discriminated against, if that makes sense. A lot of questions there. <laughs> How do you work with people with pain who feel stigmatized? And I'm sure there's not one yeah, answer. And yeah, there's not one answer. I mean, so as a psychologist, I am, you know, again, in the business of supporting people who have experienced life adversities to, you know, move forward in the face of those adversities and still um, make the most of life and, you know, live a rich and satisfying life in the presence of challenges. Sometimes that involves a great deal of what we would call self-compassion. So bringing that kindness to oneself, even when others aren't being kind to you, even when you're, you might not be kind to yourself. So if you have experiences of people invalidating your pain or stigmatizing it, you may, what we call, develop this kind of internalized stigma or your kind of inner self-critic that tells you that you're no good. So there is stuff that we can do to work with that and to develop that sense of kindness towards oneself. But I'm always interested in thinking about that alongside what needs to happen in society for society to treat people with pain better. Because I don't want the message to be that it's just a matter of the person in pain doing differently or doing better. I mean, we all just need to do better so that society is more compassionate and understanding. Whitney Scott. Now, for society to be more compassionate and understanding to resolve those inequalities in access and quality of pain care, it would have to resolve discrimination by gender, disability, locality and, of course, ethnicity. Amakissi was born in Ghana, but she's lived in Belgium since the age of three. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Ghent, where she researches the mechanisms that could account for racial disparities in pain care. She's a clinical psychologist, and as a black person, around 50% of her clients are also people of colour who struggle with racism-related stress, discrimination or trauma. If you look at the literature, what we see there is that the pain of black people is often underestimated, undertreated, even if they report similar levels of pain intensity compared to white people. So we see differences in how their pain is assessed and how their pain is treated. These disparities have not only been documented within the adult population, because that's yeah, usually the population that we think of uh, when we think about racial and ethnic disparities in pain care, but evidence actually indicates that children of color and black children also tend to receive poor pain care compared to their white peers. So why is that? Is it misinterpretation mm -hmm. on behalf of the healthcare professional? Mm -hmm. Or is it that we as white, middle-class mm -hmm. doctors are just not asking the right question. 
they all seem very relevant to look at. Uh, it could be misinterpretation of pain signals. Uh, it could be uh, indeed that there are differences in how this pain is assessed or that or that we look at or that the differences in, in the way that pain is expressed or not asking the right questions. Those are all, I think, interesting mechanisms to look at. But then if you really look at the evidence that is available at the moment, I think it's fair to say that we do not have a, a clear understanding of the mechanisms that could explain these disparities um, in pain care. There have been studies that have really looked at racial biases, like attitudes towards or hostile or negative attitudes that perhaps white people can have towards uh, black people, uh, and that that could be mechanisms that could explain these disparities. But to be fair, we don't know a lot about these things, and that's why we want to do the work that we're doing. And so our work really focuses on trying to unravel and understand the explanatory mechanisms of these disparities in pain care. Do you have any insight into what might be going on? Yeah, I do think that there are so many factors that might play a role. Uh, First of all, I think these racial biases like prejudice, stereotypes, all of these things might definitely play a role uh, because we see these factors playing a role in other domains, so I definitely think that that's a thing. I also think that there might be cultural differences perhaps in how we communicate or talk about our pain and that could also play a role and also differences in how healthcare providers that, let's say, are white, perceive or code the pain expressions of people that do not belong to their racial or ethnic group. Uh, So I think that might also play a role there. Another factor that I think also plays a role is like empathy or perspective taking because we know from literature that people tend to have difficulties demonstrating empathy or taking in the perspective of the other when that person does not belong to their own racial or ethnic group so I think that that could be a very relevant mechanism in that regard and with our line of research we really want to tap into that and zoom into that but we haven't gotten really to that point where we have a systematic research approach towards that but that's on the agenda we want to examine that. But at the moment, we've been focusing on like attentional processing as well, attentional processing of facial expressions of pain. Because usually people look at these implicit biases, thoughts that people have. But I mean, when you're confronted with a pain patient as a healthcare provider, yeah, the first thing you need to do is pay attention to that individual, right? And then not only initial attention, you also have to sustain your attention and really look at that person and try to understand what the internal experience is of that individual, what that individual is trying to communicate to you. So because of the importance of attentional processing, we were like, okay, we need to examine that and look at what's going on. Yeah, so I think there are so many factors that play a role on the side of the healthcare provider, but also on the side of the patient and then structural factors like the fact that in some countries, like if you don't have like the legal documents to, you know, to stay in a country, you perhaps cannot use the healthcare system. So these are also factors that play a role. What are your experiences of healthcare then? As a patient, well, whenever I go in and talk about my complaints when I'm ill, I always feel like I'm not always taking that seriously, but my partner is white. Uh, and when he's there, I feel like the consultation is always 
take longer or they tend to direct their attention towards him and talk to him more. And I don't think it's an, an intentional thing that people do, but it's just my observation. And also like when I gave birth two years and a few months ago of my son, he's an only child, eh? so my son is mixed. My birth experience was so traumatic. I had a C-section as well and I like after receiving the surgery when we went back to the maternity unit and I was in my room and then like the first day I got pain medication the second day yeah I was so focused on keeping that little human being alive and you know I'm trying to breastfeed and it was like mid-covid so my mom was not there to help me and uh yeah my partner and I we had to figure everything out and I remember being in so much pain yeah, I felt like, okay, is this normal? Like, nobody came in today to ask me how my pain was. Nobody came in to ask me if I need a pain medication or anything. And so, like, in the late afternoon, a nurse came in, and she's like, I saw on your chart that you had haven't received any pain medication today, and I just had surgery. <laughs> and I remember feeling so sad because I was really in pain, but it made me also so sad because I realized that I was one of the cases or one of the participants that I have had been reading about in my research. So for me, that was like, wow, this is really happening. There were so many biases that people had. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, black moms say they do an amazing job when they give birth. And yeah, I like black people. I know you guys can, you know, endure a lot of pain and you look so athletic. So wow. wow. And I was like, that is just all so irrelevant. So I felt like people already had this notion or this idea like she's good because she's black. She can take it. They're used to taking heart or enduring hardship. That was my feeling. I'm not saying it was the case, but that was my feeling. But then the fact that I did not receive pain medication when I should have received it, that was for me a red flag. And that was the realization for me, at least at that moment, like, wow, okay, this is reality. Uh, and I knew it was reality, but then I, I had really experienced it in a very clear manner. And it also motivated me to continue this line of research because I felt like this needs to change. This shouldn't happen to anyone. When you were saying earlier about your partner who is white yeah. and the focus of a consultation mm -hmm. is to the white partner mm -hmm. not the black partner mm -hmm. did he notice it yeah <laughs> yeah he noticed it yeah and then at the same time he noticed it but he didn't do anything with it because he was you know at that moment just engaging in the conversation and talking of course because he wanted to help me and I'm his partner I'm sick so he's like <laughs> let me give the information that is needed to help this doctor make a good assessment so it's double in a sense that he does realize it but at the same time he's perhaps so used to situations in which people do listen to his thoughts or what he wants to share at that moment but I'm already happy that he noticed it and I knew that it was not just me that I wasn't imagining stuff. You're doing a workshop with healthcare professionals at this uh, scientific meeting with the British Pain Society tomorrow. What are you going to do? I want to make people aware of the existence of racial disparities in pain care and how it manifests uh, and the fact that it's a widespread problem that we see it across different settings like emergency department, pediatrics, maternity, so many different settings 
different ages, across different genders. You know, it's such a pervasive, such a widespread problem. So I want to make people aware of this problem. Yeah, I want us to really think critically about the research that we're conducting. Really think critically about who are the people that we are testing. Are they primarily white people that we are testing or not? Because that impacts the knowledge that is generated. It can lead to a point where there is a bias in what we know about, let's say, chronic pain, and that perhaps knowledge that we have does not generalize to all populations. So I want people to be really aware and think critically about who are the people that we're testing, where did our knowledge come from, and to what extent do we really understand or try to understand the lived experiences of people of color? And how are we including them in our research processes? And, you know, I've been here at this conference and uh, my students and I, we presented a poster to actually promote more racial diversity in pain research. And then when I looked around and when I was looking at all these different posters and the research that uh, was conducted, or the research, at least the research that they are describing, I don't know, I just felt like, I want to know more about the people behind the numbers. Who are these people? Or the people that were being tested, people that look like me? Where do I fit in? And, and, and if I have this knowledge on these, well, what can I do with this knowledge? Does it tell me something about my lived experiences or people that look like me or people that I love, like my mom or yeah, my son, uh, my siblings? Those are the questions that I have. And it's a bit disappointing to walk around and to see that there's not a lot of research being conducted on the experiences of people of color. I think that's sad, and I hope we change that in the future. Ama Kissy. As in every edition of Airing Pain, I like to remind you of the small print that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on Airing Pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. They're the only people who know you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, it's important for us at Pain Concern to have your feedback on these podcasts so that we know that what we're doing is relevant and useful and to know what we're doing well or maybe not so well. So do please leave your comments or ratings in whichever platform you're listening to this on or the Pain Concern website, of course, which is painconcern.org.uk. That'll help us develop and plan future editions of Airing Pain. Last words in this edition of Airing Pain to Amma Kissy. It's okay for me to come to this conference and talk about these disparities and try to, you know, create awareness and stuff like that. Like, I think it's invaluable and it's necessary to do that, but it can't stop there. I, I think we all need to, you know, rethink the way that we're conducting research, rethink the way we approach and treat our, our patients. Eh? On a societal level, we need stakeholders, we need leaders to really rethink our healthcare system and make sure that everyone, irrespective of their background, can actually enjoy good quality healthcare. Those are one of the human rights, and I think we have to really take that seriously and look at ways in which we can make sure that that right is executed or that people can enjoy that right.